diagnosing the divide, how the sacred-secular split affects our lives, our faith, and our society. You know, Christianity used to have a significant cultural influence in this country and in the Western world in general. In fact, it was the predominant cultural force for hundreds of years. Uh, From the very start of the church, as uh, Christianity spread around the known world and then began to push up into Europe and began to convert the the pagan tribes that were there uh, in northern Europe and and, uh, up into the UK, uh, they brought about order and brought about uh, a value of human life that was unknown in the pagan world at that time. And by bringing in Christianity into these areas, it opened the doors for all sorts of creativity in the realms of architecture and in uh, music and in literature and in ways that those societies hadn't seen before. And cities and societies were established that provided for human flourishing, again, in a way that those pagan societies had not seen. And so us today, we're downstream from those years of Cultural progress. And yet, as we know, in our nation today, our Christian heritage is being repudiated. It's being ignored. It's being even denied. Now, why is this? Why is it that Christianity has been so marginalized in our day? That's what I want to address this morning. I believe it is because a divide has developed in our thinking, and in the way that we live as Christians and as Americans. And Christians have not spotted this divide, have not diagnosed it appropriately, and thus it has moved Christianity to the realm of the irrelevant. You see, Christianity is now tolerated merely as a private religion, as someone's personal preference. But it isn't allowed in our public conversation. The powerful people in our society don't want to hear our Christian views on politics, on education, on marriage, and any other host of issues. They're okay with us having our personal religion, that's okay, but they don't want it to affect our public life, how we are in the workplace, how we are in the classroom, and how we act in our votes. In fact, a recent New York Times editorial stated that Americans have the right to, quote, believe what they do and say uh, as they wish in their pews, homes, and hearts. And say that we, we, we can believe that we are able to do what we want, say what we want, but only in our pews, in our homes, and our hearts. The important thing is what's not mentioned there. What isn't mentioned is the rest of our lives, where we live our day-to-day. Once we leave our church buildings, once we leave our homes, and we're out in the public amongst other people, the implication is you don't have the right to do what you want and do what you say in those spheres. And so Christianity has been pushed out of the public sphere, and we as evangelicals, as Christians over the last several hundred years have allowed it to happen. We have inadvertently contributed to the sidelining of Christianity by allowing a divide to develop in our society and in our thinking. But losing the culture isn't our only problem. We're losing the next generation as well. 
right? Statistics abound. Uh, each year there seems to be a new study that's showing how uh, people, young people who have grown up in the church are leaving the faith once they step out of the home. And in fact, it's one study showed that among those who attend high school or attend church in high school for at least a year, four out of 10 of them leave the church and never come back. But why do they leave? They leave because they're looking for answers. They're looking for uh, answers to some of the biggest questions. And as they've asked them, they've largely been told, listen, you just need to believe more. You just need to believe harder. Increase your faith. We've taught them a version of Christianity that's about having the right heart. And the problem is, is that we haven't also taught their minds. It's a heart religion and not a brain religion. We haven't given them strong intellectual footing for their faith. So they step out into the, cult, into the secular universities, into the secular workplace, and they're unprepared for the barrage of challenges that come to their faith. And in fact, one... Uh, high school theology teacher at a Christian school in teaching his theology class, he drew a heart on one side of the blackboard and a heart on the other. And he made it clear that the heart was used for religion and the brain was used for science. We as a Christian community continue to perpetuate this divide between the heart and the mind. And we relegate Christianity to the heart alone. You see, if we only give people a heart religion, then it will not be a strong, strong enough to stand against the attractiveness of dangerous ideas that are out there today. They need a brain religion, a heart and brain religion, a religion that prepares them to be a minority in the classroom and the workplace, prepares them to be a lone voice of Christian morality and truth. So how do we turn the tide? How do we equip our young people to be a strong force for Christ in the world? How do we regain a place at the public conversation? Now we know that this world, as Christ said, will always uh, dislike the gospel, right? They hated Jesus, they will hate us, and there will always be opposition to Christ. But I believe that we can do a better job at presenting the Christian faith. We can be a better job at preparing ourselves and our children to live as a powerful force for Christ in this world. And the first step to doing that is is to diagnose this divide that has taken place in our thinking. As the first step in order to develop a fully orbed, rounded out Christian worldview. A worldview that sees a Christ as Lord over everything. A worldview that understands that Christians can get involved in any area of this world and bring their Christian faith into any area of this world with confidence. Because this is God's world. It belongs to him. So when this age-old divide continues, our worldview is stripped of its power to explain this world and to be a powerful alternative to what this world offers. And so this morning... We're going to ask and answer three questions so that we can diagnose this divide that is developed in our thinking and in our society. And so we can then reclaim a total comprehensive Christian worldview. And we'll do that over these next two weeks. This morning, we're going to diagnose the problem. And next week, uh, we will present the full antidote to this problem. I will definitely hint at the antidote and the answer this morning. But... 
The answer more fully will come next week. Now, uh, this series is a little bit different than what we normally have as a regular diet from this pulpit. And um, so uh, hang with me. Uh, we, this morning, we're not going to be opening our Bibles a whole lot, although we will. Uh, next week, your fingers will be tired from all the verses that we'll look up. So um, this, they really are meant to go together. And I trust it will be helpful for you to equip you to live as a faithful Christian uh, in this world today. I just want to mention that a lot um, of the foundation of what I'm saying this morning has come uh, from this book called Total Truth by Nancy Piercy. Um, highly recommend it. Uh, it was extremely enlightening for me. Uh, you can tell it's a little thick, um, but it, it reads quick and super informative. And uh, it has, uh, has been extremely helpful for me. So for those of you who are readers and, and want more can, can investigate that. Total Truth by Nancy Piercy. So let's begin by answering these questions. Let's first answer the first question. What is the divide? What is this divide that we're talking about? Well, this divide takes on a few different variations, but they all stem from a similar dichotomy. And so what I'm going to do is take you through uh, several different ways in which this divide, this dichotomy has shown up in our society or in the history of Christian thought. And maybe one or two, or maybe all of them will, you'll identify with, but hopefully at some point you'll begin to see what I'm talking about. So first let's look at, in terms of what we've already mentioned, the heart and brain divide. The heart and brain divide. And this was what was illustrated by that Christian science teacher. It's characterized by an understanding of faith and reason that don't allow the two to interact. That sees reason and science and the investigation of this world as uh, relating to our brain, as, as, as our reason, and we think things through. But our Christianity doesn't get into that. Our Christianity is over here, and we just have some things that we believe, and we enjoy, and it warms our heart, and we have great worship experiences, and that's great. We don't need to think about the things that we believe. This divide can be expressed in statements such as, you just need a stronger faith. Don't worry about searching for evidence for Christianity. Or, just believe Jesus is God. Don't worry about all the details of theology. Right? Just believe the simple things and don't worry about diving any deeper. This is seen in preaching, in which is designed to simply stir the emotions of people and ignores theology and doctrine and the need to think about what we believe and to investigate it in the, the pages of Scripture. This is also seen in churches that, that seek to offer worship experiences that are centered on swelling music and sweeping up audiences, but that does not instruct in the truth of Scripture. It's centered in the heart, the emotions, the, the, the getting pulled into these things, and yet it leaves the brain at the door. Bertrand Russell a popular atheist of the 20th century, once said that Christians would rather die than think, and many do. It's a sad tale of many Christians, corners of Christianity. Does this sound familiar to you? Have you seen this? Have you seen how this develops? Well, let's look at the next uh, way this divide can take place. It's uh, known as the secular, sacred-secular divide. The sacred-secular divide. Now, this divide has been clearest in its historic differentiation between the, the clergy and the laity. For hundreds of years, there was a, a vast difference between those who served in the church, who were missionaries or pastors, and those who lived their normal lives, who were simply congregants in the church. 
And so uh, if you uh, were really serving God, it meant that you were, had given your life to the church or to ministry. And uh, the rest of you, well, you know, you hope to try to get in a little service of God on, when you came on Sunday and everything else. And every, any other time you're at church. And so this divide really reached its pinnacle across the society during the, the, height, the, 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 the uncontested reign of the Roman Catholic Church before the Reformation. And as we'll see later, the Reformers helped to uh, attack this divide. But even after the Reformation, this divide continued. This distinction has been hard to shake. And I'm sure you've even, maybe even felt it in your own heart and life. Can I really serve God in my day to day? Can I really serve God as I go to work every day? As I'm at home. Because it seems like the pastors and the missionaries are the ones who are really serving God. Or maybe I need to go on a missions trip to serve God. This can also be seen in how we talk about our spiritual life and the rest of our life, right? We talk about how's your spiritual life going. And we just make sure that our spiritual part of our life is fine. And we have that cordoned off from the rest of our life. We have our devotions in the morning and then we go about our secular day. This is the sacred, secular divide. And again, has been hard to shake and no doubt is still a part of our thinking. This, the next way we can express this divide is in terms of public and private. The public and private divide. And this is where we begin to talk in terms that even um, secular sociologists um, recognize. And these are, these are some of the terms that they even uh, have identified. And this is a divide that can be seen across all spectrums of society. The public sphere refers to the institutions of government, of powerful corporations, and academia. That's the public realm. That's the realm in which real life takes place. Because then there's the private sphere, which is the home and the family, the church, personal relationships. In the public sphere... These institutions claim to be scientific. They claim to be value-free. Oh, we don't have religion here. We're just here to talk about ideas and talk about things objectively. But then, that means that they've pushed all religion and morality and everything else into the private sphere of the home, of our hearts, and the houses of worship, as we saw earlier. So, and in that realm of the private sphere is where relativism abounds. Everyone can have their personal views. That's fine. Yeah, that's great if you have your personal views on certain things. That's great. You know, everyone's got their views on things. But don't you dare bring that view out of the private sphere and into the public sphere. Because that breaks the rules. Religion is seen simply as a preference, not an objective truth that we must submit to. Religion is seen as a preference, not as an objective truth that we must submit to. And yet that is the very claim that Christ makes in the scriptures is that the Christianity is a claim to all of life that every single person on this planet must submit to. They say it's only a matter of personal taste in which we choose. So Christianity is put in the private sphere. It's irrelevant to, these, to uh, the big corporations, to government, to academia, that's fine if you can do your little worship stuff on the weekends, but that sh- shouldn't be brought out in the public. The late actor Christopher Reeve said when he was addressing a group of students at Yale on stem cell research, said this, he said, when matters of public policy are debated, 
No religion should have a seat at the table. No religions. And we hear that and we're actually not that surprised by that, right? We're like, yeah, they, they don't want religion to be brought into the public sphere. But we need to realize what they've done and how that dichotomy has pushed out any sort of truth that we have from the word of God. This is why employers don't want you talking about your personal views. They want you to function as a secular, unbelieving person while you're on the job. And you can have your faith in the private areas of your life. Now, I'm not saying that Christians should be using all work time just to evangelize. I'm saying how we think about our jobs and how we make decisions every day should be informed from a biblical worldview. How does God speak about all these things? And that should change how we live. The same goes for the classroom. Sure, you can go to church, that's fine, Christians, but when you're here in the classroom, you can't bring religion in. You can't bring religion in. In fact, there's a, uh, a community college here in Southern California that was having a, a religious tolerance uh, discussion in which they invited several different people from several different religions, and uh, they were all presenting their different views on life and religion. But at the same exact time, a Christian student was handed back a paper, uh, just another part on another place on campus, in which the teacher said, this is the last time I want you to bring religion into your papers. I've warned you three other times. It's, you're going to get an F on the next paper that you present your Christian views in. Whoa, where's the tolerance, right? But you realize, yeah, relig- we can have a religious tolerance debate because they're just deciding what they want to choose for their private life. But over here in the public realm, the Decision's already been made. There's already a reigning philosophy that's here. The next way that we can see this divide is called the fact-value split. The fact-value split. And so, on one side, we have our values. And in fact, we as a Christian community are prone to talk this way. We talk about our Christian values, our family values. But we need to understand what the secular world hears when they hear us talk about our values. When they hear us talk about our values, they're hearing us talk about this irrelevant sphere of personal choice and moral relativism. But when we talk about values, we're saying these are values that God has given us in his word and that dictate all the rest of our lives. But they're happy to let you have your values. Because that's not the realm of facts. That's not the realm of true hard data. That's, what's, that's the facts that are over here. Science is based upon facts. Religion is simply based upon values. And those are totally up for grabs. And this is why the issue of the origin, uh, when the issue of the origin of the universe is discussed, creationism doesn't have a place at the table because they say creationism is part of a religion and thus it's in the value sphere. It's not a part of the, the fact sphere. That's just your, that's your view that God created the world. That's a personal value. But see, evolution, they claim, is backed by science. And uh, they, thus they consider it binding on everybody else. So lastly, the last way that we can describe this divide is called the two-story view of truth. The two-story view of truth. Uh, An upper story and a lower story. And I hope you've been seeing, even though these are kind of different names, they're all identifying the same basic divide. So the top story is postmodernism. It's subjective. It's relative. 
The bottom story is, is modern. Uh, modernism, it's objective, it's universally valid. And this is the dichotomy that the secular world lives with in their own brains and in their own lives. And if we're not careful, we can live with it as well. They, you, know, you look at postmodern and modernism and you go, these are rival philosophies. One says there's an objective truth and one says there's no such thing as an objective truth except for that truth. Um, but the reality is, is that this is how people live their lives. They've split their lives into one realm is completely relative and up for grabs and one is solid and universally valid. I mean, just think about the presidential candidates, right? I mean, politicians for years have claimed some religion or another. And they claim that they're Christians here, Roman Catholics or whatnot, and they have their, they have their religion. It's, it's, it's usually been some form of Christianity, although that's slowly changing. And they claim to have some religious affiliation, but their views on a whole number of issues don't seem to match that affiliation, right? We, you say, oh yeah, they kind of claim to be a Christian or they grew up Methodist or whatever thing they might attach themselves to. But then when it goes to their political views and how they're living those things out, there seems to be, uh, it's not connected to anything in the scriptures. You know, how can that be? It's because they live with this dichotomy in their lives. Their faith or whatever religious affiliation they have is in the upper story. It's relative. It's sure, yeah, I've, I kind of affiliate with a certain religion. But then in the lower story, when it comes to their views, they've, they've totally separated those off. Nothing jumps between those spheres. Those stories are totally separated. There's no crossover. Now, you can even see this two-story view of truth on, the, on, on any college campus you step onto. Because on one side, you have the humanities and the arts, right? And the social sciences. That's the upper sphere in which postmodernism reigns. And then you go to the hard sciences and you get modernism in which there's, an, there's universal truth that goes for everybody and it better not be questioned. And so, yes, we do see postmodernism coming on to the, into the realms of morality and whatnot. But there's also areas in which modernism and hard truth still reigns. And I believe this has affected Christians as well as been talking about. And by failing to diagnose this divide in our society and in our thinking, we have allowed this, this uh, dichotomy to function as a gatekeeper, which is allowed as the gatekeeper in our schools, in our governments, in our workplaces. We've been coddled by being told that science does not rule out religious belief. They go, oh no, no, you can believe in science and it won't conflict your belief because they've got this two-part divide. Not because it's all consistent in an integrated worldview in which it all makes sense. No, it's, it'll fit with your religion because you see, those things don't cross. Religion can function in a sphere, in a sphere all by itself. Sure, you can have your religious values. You can have your beliefs. You can have your, your emotions and all of that. That's fine. But see, they don't see that as rational knowledge that's applicable to everybody. Therefore, Christianity has been marginalized as strictly an upper story kind of truth. It's a truth that's not binding on everybody. And yet we can still talk in such a way and still live in such a way that communicates that as well. We're going to look at this more next week, but, I, but we can't allow Christianity to stay in the upper sphere. Because God doesn't allow it to be in the upper story. The Bible doesn't allow it. 
In fact, if you could open your copy of God's Word to the book of Mark, chapter 12. Mark, chapter 12. A passage you guys are no doubt familiar with. Jesus is questioned and then gives an answer about what the most important commandment is. Look in verse 28. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God The Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Jesus makes it very clear here in the greatest commandment that our primary responsibility is to love the Lord our God. But notice it's not just in our hearts. It's not just in the private spheres of our lives. We're to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our mind, with all of our strength. With everything that we are, we should be expressing love to God. Therefore, there's not one corner of our life in which we can simply set God aside, in which we can stop expressing our love for God in that corner of our lives. Every aspect of our life should be about giving love to God and how we live. Who God is and what he's done in creating this world and saving the people for himself should inform everything that we do. These are the basic pillars of a Christian worldview and should be carried into everything that we do. There's no division between public and private. Jesus Christ is Lord over every molecule. He's Lord over every moment of our days and of our lives. Therefore, every moment we live, every decision we make, whether it be at home, at church, at work, at school, or in the voting booth, should be done in respect to who God is and what he's revealed to us. So that's the divide. We need to diagnose it. Let's next look at how did it develop. The second question this morning, how did this divide develop? Now, I obviously cannot give you a full historical analysis this morning, but I just want to touch on a few major streams that flow into our present day, into our modern life and how this dichotomy developed. So it's like we're going to be hopping into an airplane. We're going to see the river of history as it flows down into today and see some of the tributaries that flowed into that river that's led to uh, where we're at, this lake called the two-story view of truth. So the first tributary, the first river we're seeing going to flow into uh, this river is Plato, or the philosophy known as Platonism, which simply is the teachings of Plato. Now, dualism, this divide, this dichotomy, this dualistic thinking has existed as long as Christianity has existed. 
This has not developed recently. The church was founded, if you remember, in the Greek and the Roman world. That Greek culture was everywhere. And therefore, even though the early Christians rejected much of their pagan backgrounds, there was some of that pagan ideology that continued to hang on. And so some of their ideas were mixed with Greek and Roman ideas. Now, not the authors of Scripture. We know that that God inspired those, and those um, have been uh, strictly inspired from God. But some of the errors that came from Platonism began to filter into some of the early theologians. Now, Plato lived several hundred years before Christ, and he taught that this world was made up of form and matter. Form was the spiritual realm, and matter was the physical realm. Both are eternal, and form was trying to help, help to uh, corral the chaotic uh, matter. Matter was kind of going out of control. It was just kind of all over the place. And form was trying to bring it into control and shape it appropriately. And so the problem with the world is matter. Matter, it's chaotic form is, that, that isn't, getting, isn't uh, being formed. That's the problem with the world. It's chaotic. It's unruly. And so he said that everything on earth was just a shadow of the ideal of its form up in the spiritual realm. So that thinking then filtered into society and mixed in with some uh, biblical ideals or uh, biblical teachings caused people to reject the physical as inferior and to see the spiritual as superior. And this mentality was quickly adopted by Christian theologians in the early centuries of the church. Men such as Clement of Alexandria, Augustine, Jerome, Origen. And you can kind of see why, right? Because the scriptures talk about this battle between the flesh and the spirit. And so this idea that there's something in our bodies, in our flesh that we've got to fight against and that we need to submit ourselves to the spirit of God and we need to live uh, more spiritual lives can easily play in and mix in with this Platonism. And we kind of go, yeah, the physical, that's bad. It draws me into sin and, and, and there's, there's bad stuff here. My body's bad. It's tempting me, whatever. And so I need, uh, the spiritual is how I need to live. And so this, uh, this preference of the spiritual over the physical held sway in Christian circles well into the Middle Ages. It resulted in a view of sin that was physical instead of moral. It saw sin as something in this world. Our physical bodies, uh, pleasurable food, sexual pleasure. These things were considered dirty and bad because they were part of this world. This was the problem of the physical world. It wasn't, they didn't identify as a moral problem, a problem with our hearts. And so, therefore, the really godly and the really spiritual people, what did they do? They tried to escape all these physical things. They, they headed out of the convenient modern life, as it was modern in that day, and headed out into the monasteries. They wore rough clothes. They ate simple meals. They had rough schedules. They, uh, they practiced asceticism of, of, of denying themselves certain things. There was avoidance and a suppression of the material aspects of life. Because that was seen as more godly. Manual labor, those who worked with their hands, was regarded as less valuable than prayer and meditation. Marriage and sexuality were rejected in favor of celibacy. Ordinary social life was, was one in a, a lower plane, was, was put in a lower plane than life in the monasteries. 
And so the goal of the spiritual life was to free the mind from the evil world of the body and the senses so it could assent to God. And no doubt, these, some of these ideas have trickled down even to today. I'm sure you've heard them or can even identify them in even some of your own thinking. But see, this was Greek philosophy with Christian labels. This wasn't a strictly biblically informed view of the world because the Bible affirms that everything was created good. God created this world good. Genesis 1 declares very clearly. And so sin is not a problem with this physical world. The problem, sin is a problem of our hearts. This physical world can be used for evil, but it's the problem is rebellious hearts that use it for evil purposes, not the physical things themselves. The body is not inherently sinful. And the biggest testimony to that is that the son of God took on a body and he was sinless. The incarnation would not be possible if physical things such as the body were actually sinful. So this view continued well into the middle ages. Aquinas tried to challenge it by going back to Aristotle instead of Plato. Uh, And while he did do some good in terms of trying to affirm the goodness of creation, he still taught a strict dualism between the physical and the spiritual, and thus this divide continued. Now, the reformers were great at targeting it. They targeted the sacred-secular split. They said, they said no, there's the, the Bible teaches the priesthood of all believers, which means that every one of us has access to God. Every one of us has the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us, and therefore one of us is not more holy than the other just because they, they work for the church or they teach the Word of God. Everyone has value. Everyone can live a holy life before God. And in fact, you serve God as you carry out your job in this world. As you step out into your workplace, whether it be in the home or, or outside the home, you are serving the Lord in the high calling that he's given you. This was the doctrine of Christian vocation that was now applied to everybody, not just to the clergy. But for all this work, they did not rid the world of this dualistic thinking. It continued. So the next stream I want us to talk about is the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment. Now, I know this feels like history of philosophy class, um, trying to keep it big level for you. Um, The main contribution of the Enlightenment was simply that it elevated reason to the level of divine. Your reason, my reason in my head, was suddenly seen as the number one authority for all of life. If it doesn't fit with my reason, if I can't discern it and observe it in this world, then it's not true. And so, therefore, it threw off all external authorities. It doesn't matter what the church says. It doesn't matter what anybody else before us says because it's got to filter through my own brain. My own brain is the authority for all truth. And this was tied into the scientific revolution in which uh, uh, Francis Bacon uh, proposed this view of observing the world by looking at the facts, by removing all prejudices and biases and looking simply at the facts and then inducting your views from those, those facts. And so empirical observation of the world was the only path to true knowledge. And whatever you couldn't observe ended up being an illusion, ended up being fake. We just kind of believe it because we need to believe it. We believe in emotions because we kind of need to believe it. We believe in human free will because we kind of need to believe it, but not because we can observe it, and thus it's not really real. The introduction of Newtonian physics, in which Isaac Newton talked about the laws of physics, 
that brought in this, uh, introduced this uh, thinking into the world that this world was just one big machine moving forward by these laws that were just kind of there and, and kind of causing this big machine of the world to move forward. And so the invisible things such as the soul and spirit, thoughts, emotions, and will were moved to this upper story. In a, a mechanistic view of the universe, there's no way to explain religion. We don't know why people believe in God because we can't see God. We can't see anything about it. But we know people believe in it, so we'll just kind of stick it up in the upper story that's irrational, and people can kind of believe it as they want to. So here you can see the fact-value split, right? The facts are what you can observe. The values are the things that you can't observe, you can't explain, and are largely irrelevant to the public facts. And so the lower realm became the realm of publicly verifiable facts, while the upper story became the realm of socially constructed values. If you ask a secularist today how we have morals and why we have morals, they say it's simply socially constructed. A bunch of us um, evolved people got together and uh, decided that this was the best thing that we should do in order to keep each other alive. That's the best they can come up with. Because we can't explain it. Now, we don't have time to go into all the other influences such as the American Revolution, which promoted individualism, or the Industrial Revolution, which separated the family uh, between uh, the home and the woman and the public and men out in the working public, or the First and Second Great Awakenings and the ways that revivalism began to uh, speak more towards the heart than to the mind and even had a disdain for the mind. All these influences flowed together to perpetuate this dualism in the mind of Americans and especially American Christians. And so therefore, we are downstream from these thought processes today. We are battling a dualism that stubbornly sticks with us and can cause us to keep our faith silent in the places where it matters the most. And so let's end by asking this third question. The third question. How does this divide affect us? Some of you might still be asking, so what? Hopefully I can answer that at this last question. The first part, the first uh, way that this divide affects us is that this divide can cause us to see God as part of our life, not the center of it. We see God as a part of our life, not the center of it. It could be expressed in this way, in, in, in the sense that you're looking over the priorities of your life, right? Say you're going to sit down and make a list of the priorities in your life. And you, you do, number one, God. Number two, family. Number three, work. Number four, schooling. Number five, we go down the list and we create this priority list. And while one sense... Uh, There's a helpful reality to priority list in that sense. But if that is allowed to continue, what it can can create in our minds is that God's got this separate category. And when do we know that we've checked off the list that we've given God the, the number one priority? Well, we think when we've done our devotions in the morning or when we've gone to church or when we've done these, we've gone to our small group or we've served in some capacity and then we check off and then we move on to the next list, next thing on our list. You see, it separates God out from all the other things of our lives. When really we should be thinking of, of, of God in our lives like, like the sun and the solar system, right? He is dead center of our lives and everything that's going on in our lives is revolving around Christ. 
And, and Christ affects everything that we do. It affects every aspect of our lives. Yes, he's number one. He's the center of it all. And so evangelicals on a large scale have bought into this divide. They've moved faith into the upper story. It's privatized. It's true for me. You know, you hear people say, hey, I'm not pushing this on you. I'm just saying this is what happened to me. This is my testimony, right? But when we do that, we're saying that this isn't a truth for all of life that everyone needs to submit to. We're simply saying this is true for me. And people go, yeah, that's, that's cool. You got, you got what you believe and I got what I believe. And you can kind of tell your story, your little testimony. That's cool. And so this creates a divide in our worldview. We have the God side and we have the everything else side. And God becomes a part of our lives rather than the middle, the dead middle of it. And so there's a dichotomy in our thinking, a dichotomy in our lives. And it moves God out to a different part. So that's the first effect that it can have upon us. The second way that this divide affects us is it can cause daily work to lose significance and meaning. It can cause daily work to lose significance and meaning. The vast majority of Christians are left with an inferior sense of what they do every day. They know that God's called them to be a husband or wife, to be working, to provide for the family. And so the rightness of providing for the family motivates them to get up every day and head out there and work. But that's all the value that it is. I'm just out here to, to bring home a paycheck for the family. Instead of seeing every occupation, every profession, whether it be law or medicine, education, homemaking or engineering, or the the thousands of other occupations and professions that you are all involved in every day as a way to serve God in the very things that you do every day. You serve God by serving others in your occupations. Serving God is not just for the pastors, is not just for the missionaries, is not just when you come to church or when you do your devotions. You serve God every day, and every day what you do has significance and value. God is pleased by what you do. And you see a holistic Christian worldview enables us to, to have the lenses to see that. But when this dualistic thinking comes into our mind, we have this spiritual part of our life and the rest of the places we live our lives. We don't know how our Christian faith informs our law practice. We don't know how our Christian faith informs our, our teaching job. We don't know how our Christian faith informs our engineering job. It just hasn't even crossed over into that field to think about the realm of engineering. You know, God created engineering. This is God's world. It has rationality and predictability because God is rational and predictable. Our Christian worldview can explain why engineering exists. The naturalistic worldview can't explain why engineering exists. And that's just an example for the host of other arenas that we need to apply a Christian worldview to think about. Lastly, the, the third effect that this divide can have upon us is that this divide can cause our witness for Christ to be handicapped. Cause our witness for Christ to be handicapped. And we've kind of talked about this along the way. But if we talk to people about our Christian values and we simply, hey, let me just tell you my story. 
I'm not going to impose my views on you. I'm just going to tell you my story. Then they hear, okay, he's talking about this realm of, of value in which postmodernism reigns and everyone can have their own separate views and it doesn't matter what you believe. And um, he's not talking about the scientific realm. He's not talking about hard facts. He's not talking about a knowledge that applies to me. So I can, yeah, I can put up with hearing your story. That's cool. And so as we look to go out and, and witness to this lost and dying world, we are, we are not providing anything different than what they already have. They live with this dichotomy every day. Right? They, they have views about morality and about, about arts and, and the humanities in this world. And that's all postmodernist and, and relative. And then they go off and, and try to go into the hard sciences of their lives and, uh, and, and live in a concrete world. And so they live with this dichotomy. So if we are simply uh, providing a, an, a view that also has that divide, we're not helping them break out of that. We're not providing an answer to the mental dissonance that, that's in their lives. Like I said, other worldviews can't explain this world. They can't explain uh, why certain things are here. They can't explain uh, why human beings are valuable. Christianity is the only view that has the, a high view of humans. Because we believe they're made in the image of God. A secular worldview, particularly a naturalistic, Darwinistic worldview, sees everyone as a product of this big machine that's rolling forward. We are just complex machines that have evolved to the state that we're at. And therefore, when they go home to look at their kids, they can't explain why they have love for their kids. Why should I have love for a robot or for a complex machine? And yet they live with that mental dissonance that their science tells them, my kid is just a robot. My kid is just a complex machine of molecules and, and atoms bouncing around. And yet they live, they have to live in such a way because the image of God breaks through even in unbelieving mindsets. They have to live, they live with love towards their kids, but they can't explain it. And that is all over life. That is all over life. No other worldview can explain everything that we see. Christianity does. And so we need to present a holistic worldview that understands, that touches into every area of life and provides a comprehensive picture for what we believe and why we believe it. And we can do that confidently. I can just say that I, I've been to, uh, I grew up in a, a, a believing home, went to church all of my life, went to Christian schools my entire life. And yet I don't believe that when I graduated from my Christian high school, or maybe even my Christian college for that matter, I was as prepared as I could be in order to face this pluralistic world in which we live? How can I step out with confidence that I believe the Christian worldview is the only way to explain this world? And yes, you can throw any accusation you can at me. You can throw anything you want at this book, but I'm not afraid because I know this is God's world and this is God's truth. And thus this makes sense here in this world. Nothing else makes sense. We need to recapture that confidence because otherwise the cultural ball is going to be thrown at us. What do you believe about this? What do you believe about that? And we're going to shrink back and and we're like, uh, I just know what I believe. I got my story. I came to faith. And, and they go, okay, that's just that's in the irrelevant sphere. Instead, they throw it at us and we catch it and we go, we knew we were going to say that. I knew you were going to make that accusation. Let me explain why that doesn't make sense. But see, if we keep retreating into this private sphere, and that's where our, state, our faith stays, it's not going to be compelling. And it's not going to be anything different. 
So I think we as Christian community need to stop talking about values. Unfortunately, that word has been hijacked. It's been misunderstood. Because when they hear values, they don't think truth. So we need to speak in terms of truth and in terms of knowledge. We are not just giving religious values. We're giving truth for all of life. Christianity is total truth. It's truth for all of life. Because Christ is truth for all people in all places in all times. Jesus Christ is the truth, the way, and the life. And therefore, if we are going to present Christianity as, as a path of life, we must present it as the total truth that it is. I pray that God enables us to see this divide in our thinking and help us to then develop a Christian worldview that is able to explain this earth. And so next week, we're going to actually look through, we're going to, going to do a, a jet tour of the foundations of a Christian worldview. And we're going to, like I said, we're going to be flipping all over the word of God. I want you guys to be equipped to know why we believe what we believe and why you can be confident that this is total truth for all of life. So I hope you can make it next week and we'll uh, pick up part two, the solution to how do we fix this divide in our thinking. Let's pray together. Our loving Father, we we were reminded this morning in the psalm that you are great. You are great because you created all things. You are great because you sustain all things. People and animals look to you for food and for sustenance. God, you are the sovereign one over this entire universe. Father, we don't even realize the ways in which this unbiblical thinking has crept into our minds and into our lives. I pray that you would begin to show us, Lord, where we are not bringing our faith into the public sphere, where we are afraid to explain it as truth for all of life. Father, we want to be effective witnesses for you. And so I pray that each one of us would grow in our confidence of your word, in the resolution that you are God, that there is no one else, and that you are with us as we testify to you to this lost and dying world. We thank you for your love for us and the ways that you are patient with us. Please help us to grow in these areas, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.